0: Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Monday, August 12th, 2019. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, would you want or even need a 100-megapixel smartphone camera? The Ninja Blevins versus Twitch breakup explained. The cat and mouse between Chrome and paywalls explained. Credit where due for Apple on wearables. And why touchscreens might not be a user interface panacea. Here's what you missed today in the world of Tech. We've been readying for announcements of smartphone cameras capable of undergoing generational changes for the better, and we got one today when Samsung unveiled its ISOCELL Bright HMX, a 108-megapixel smartphone camera sensor developed in collaboration with Xiaomi. This thing is all about ginormous. Not only the ginormity of the image you can capture, again, 108-megapixels, But also, this thing can record 6K video at 30 frames per second. It's literally large. The actual physical sensor measures 1 inch by 1.33 inches. But, quoting Engadget, even at that size, a 108-megapixel sensor will have ridiculously small pixels. By default, though, Samsung's TetraCell tech will gather the light from 4 pixels transforming it into a 27-megapixel sensor. You'll still be able to snap 108-megapixel photos if you want, but that will likely require brightly lit shooting situations. Samsung's smart ISO mechanism will automatically select lower ISOs in brighter light and high ISOs in dim shooting conditions. Hopefully, Xiaomi will give users manual control over those settings as well." No word on when these sensors might come to market... And with Xiaomi on board as a partner, maybe Samsung will let them take the first crack at giving this to consumers. But production is supposed to begin later this month, so it is possible that we could see these sensors on some handset or other by the end of the year. I didn't cover this initially because I deemed it too in the weeds of the video game industry for this podcast. But let me catch you up. Tyler Ninja Blevins is one of the biggest names in Fortnite and also one of the biggest names in online video game streaming full stop. At the beginning of the month, Blevins made headlines by leaving the Twitch video game streaming platform for Microsoft's Mixer, which is a Twitch competitor. Just five days after leaving Twitch for Mixer, Blevins hit one million active subscribers on the new service. So, okay, Mixer poaches a big name to try to build awareness among video gamers and streamers. One would have to imagine that Blevins was paid well for this move. And seemingly his fans are following him. So, so far so good, right? Well, quoting Engadget, The well-known streamer has posted a video chastising Twitch for not only using his dormant channel to promote other streamers, but to let porn find its way onto those recommendations. As eSports consultant Rod Bresloo observed, the number one stream on Twitch the morning of August 11th was a bootleg porn podcast that lasted for more than two hours. Imagine someone looking for Fortnite gameplay only to find X-rated material, end quote. So, the story has evolved into Blevins left Twitch, but Twitch didn't shut down the account and in fact was using Blevins' Dormant account to promote other streamers. But commenters and others hijacked that account, and, well, one has to suspect that maybe this was all some form of payback from a jealous Twitch. Not that I'm suggesting that Twitch was responsible for the hijacking and the porn, but by not taking down the Dormant account, and in fact trying to use it to promote other streamers, something that Blevins says doesn't happen to any other Twitch channels, Doesn't it kind of feel like this is a spurned lover that is jealous that their lover left? Twitch last night changed Blevins' old page to an offline screen, and Twitch CEO Emmett Shear apologized and suspended recommendations on that account. Quote, I apologize and want to apologize directly to @ninja that this happened. It wasn't our intent, but it should not have happened. No excuses. End quote. This also fell through our cracks just a bit, but there's been something of a cat-and-mouse game going on between web browsers and digital publishers that kind of falls into what we've recently been talking about vis-a-vis publishers and paywalls. Recent versions of the Chrome web browser have included updates to the incognito setting that prevents paywalls from detecting you in a way that locks you out of content. In other words, if you're incognito, the publisher website is can't detect that google keeps releasing new versions that help people get past the paywalls in this manner but publishers keep finding ways to detect the incognito mode thus neutering the feature even after new incognito protections were included in chrome 76 as of this morning the new york times website for example has already been able to re-enable detection of the chrome incognito mode if you try to go incognito on the Times website, you get that warning pop-up that asks you to either sign in or create an account, quoting 9to5Google. What's interesting is that the page's code doesn't seem to feature either of the currently known solutions for spotting an incognito window. All of the code that the Times used to detect private browsing in other browsers and older versions of Chrome is still firmly in place, but does not appear to feature any new solutions specific to Chrome 76. With a major player like the New York Times going back to business as usual with detecting incognito mode, it's only a matter of time before other publishers follow suit, making Google's most recent effort an exercise in futility. However, if their new method still relies in any way on the file system API that the original detection method used, there's a glimmer of hope. In the original plan for putting an end to incognito detection, Google explained that they would like to, quote, deprecate and remove the file system API altogether, assuming usage statistics show that few enough sites use it for legitimate reasons. Unfortunately, there's no way to know how quickly Google would be able to make such a move, meaning paywalls will continue to reign for the foreseeable future, end quote. According to a recent survey by Storyblock, 48% of decision makers regularly feel ashamed of the content on their websites and apps. You heard that right. Ashamed. Storyblock, a content management system, is here to help. StoryBlock makes it easier for marketers to create and edit content without hand-holding from developers, which means marketers can make killer content without waiting for developers to make changes. And developers have more time to build cool stuff instead of processing an endless backlog of content tickets. The end result is better content in less time. Fresh off a massive round of Series C funding, StoryBlock is launching a revolutionary new feature to help your team level up their content. The Ideation Room. The Ideation Room provides teams with a central space within Storyblock where they can develop new ideas together. From the very start of the content creation process, these ideas are refined and brought to life with the help of AI. Curious? Let your creativity run wild and try Storyblock for free today at get.storyblock.com/ridehome. That's get.storyblockblok.com/ridehome. Miro is a visual collaboration platform that gives your team more clarity through comprehensive functionalities that work together with your existing tool sets to make any sprint ritual whether it be a stand-up estimation, sprint planning, or retrospective, more efficient, clear, and ultimately more productive. When I did the AI resume project, I wanted it done fast and dirty. I used a remote team, and so I used Miro to keep everything on track. Miro helps ensure your team has the context they need before devoting time and resources to get the work done. With Miro, planning team tasks is smoother and gives everyone a clear sense of mission for every sprint. Plan sprints with ease using Miro's planner widget. Connect your team's JIRA or Azure instance to your Miro board to visualize and filter tasks by sprint week, status, epic, and team. Normally, mapping dependencies just links one ticket to another, but Miro has visual representations on which tasks are dependent on others. Filter by a critical level, team, and more. Streamline your estimation ritual and quickly check if your team is over or under capacity to help them be more realistic and grounded on the team's capabilities, size, etc. Whether you work in product design, engineering, UX, agile, or marketing, bring your team together on Miro. Your first three Miro boards are free when you sign up today at Miro.com. That's three free boards at M-I-R-O.com. Apple watcher extraordinaire Neil Seibart argues in his Above Avalon website that Apple deserves more credit for the surge in revenue delivered by its wearable products in recent earnings reports. You may recall that based on Recent reports, Apple's wearable business lines are now at a $16 billion annual run rate, and they're growing at a 50-60% to 60% year-over-year clip, which means they will likely soon surpass the iPad and Mac to become Apple's third-largest product category. One out of five devices Apple sells is now a wearable gadget. Again, iPhone's not seeing growth anymore. That's okay, because... The iPhones are just a platform for these wearables to grow. Quote, Apple is leveraging its ecosystem of users and devices to give its wearables business an ideal launching pad for success. While there are a handful of companies with more than a billion users, no other company has an ecosystem of a billion users and nearly 1.5 billion devices, nearly 90% of which are running the latest software. The lack of a self-sustaining ecosystem is one of the primary factors driving Fitbit's gradual fade into irrelevancy. This limitation manifests itself in new products like the Fitbit Versa smartwatch failing to catch the needed traction. In assessing why Apple's wearables business has received so little attention to date, one doesn't have to look much further than the iPhone. Preoccupation with trying to find a singular product capable of replacing the iPhone made it difficult for many to see how a platform of wearable devices is the answer for what can eventually serve as a viable iPhone alternative. It doesn't help that new Apple products are also graded on a curve next to the iPhone. If a new product is unable to move Apple's financial meter out of the gate, the product is looked at as a flop, toy, or mere iPhone accessory, end quote. But maybe what people are suddenly cluing into is that another analogy for mothership device and accessory device is platform and application. And Apple owns both. In the New York Times, Mike Isaac dives into the question of to what degree all of the consolidation of messaging platforms, consolidation of advertising systems, even, as we mentioned last week, the rebranding, potentially, of apps to include the Facebook name is all some sort of mad attempt by Facebook to stave off the sort of regulatory intervention that might entail breaking up the company into constituent parts. And by reporting this out, Isaac delivered two new interesting anecdotes. First, apparently, fear of the regulatory reaper has already scuppered one potential acquisition by Facebook, and second, more color on this whole rebranding effort, because it seems to be real. Quoting two sections here, beginning with, Last December, Facebook executives were in advanced discussions to buy House Party, a social networking app that lets multiple people video chat on their mobile phones at once, said two people with knowledge of the talks. House Party, founded in 2016 by a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, Ben Rubin, was especially popular with audiences under the age of 24. Facebook, whose members are getting older, has coveted younger users. But weeks into the discussions, Facebook's corporate development team killed the talks with House Party, the people said. House Party's executives were told that a deal would draw unwelcome federal government scrutiny to Facebook, they said. House Party was later purchased by Epic Games, the makers of the video game Fortnite. End quote. Which again, This is where regulation can help competition in a marketplace, right? House Party could have been just another defensive acquisition on Facebook's part that added yet another up-and-coming social platform to its utility belt, but would also have kneecapped an up-and-coming potential rival. Facebook had to shy away just because of the fear of regulatory action instead house party is now a part of epic games which can maybe add it to its own utility belt to maybe become a meaningful facebook rival that is healthy in a market second quote more confirmation that this instagram from facebook idea might be for reals quote last year facebook also began a rebranding project tapping at least one outside agency for help said three people familiar with the initiative the agency profit brand strategy, was asked to make Facebook into a, quote, branded house, end quote, where Facebook's moniker always preceded the name of WhatsApp and Instagram, they said. The rebranding mandate came from Mr. Zuckerberg and Antonio Lucchio, Facebook's chief marketing officer, they said, end quote. Finally today, the U.S. Navy has reportedly begun reverting to physical throttles and other sorts of helm controls on its warships after it determined that a touchscreen interface contributed to a deadly collision on board the USS John S. McCain. Quoting USNI News, The investigation into the collision showed that a touchscreen system that was complex and that sailors had been poorly trained to use contributed to a loss of control of the ship just before it crossed paths with a merchant ship in the Singapore Strait. After the Navy released a comprehensive review related to the McCain and the USS Fitzgerald collisions, Naval Sea Systems Command conducted fleet surveys regarding some of the engineering recommendations. Program Executive Officer for Ships Rear Admiral Bill Gallanus said, quote, when we started getting the feedback from the fleet from the comprehensive review effort, It was SEA-21, NAVSEA's surface ship lifecycle management organization, that kind of took the lead on doing some of the fleet surveys and whatnot. It was really eye-opening. And it goes into the, in my mind, just because you can doesn't mean you should category. "...we really made the helm control system, specifically on the DDG-51 class, just overly complex, with the touch screens under glass and all this kind of stuff," Gallinus said during a keynote speech at the American Society of Naval Engineers' annual Fleet Maintenance and Modernization Symposium." End quote. So, pausing to acknowledge, of course, the seriousness of the tragedy of the collisions, but I chose this story to make a couple of perhaps not as serious points. Remember that Benedict Evans essay about how when electrification happened, people tried to initially put electricity into every consumer appliance, and it turned out that not everything needed electricity, so now some things are electrified and some things aren't. Evans was making the point about specifically IoT devices, how maybe not everything needs to be smart, even though we're trying to put smarts into everything at the moment. Maybe A washing machine really doesn't have to have an internet connection in the end. Well, the same can be true for user interfaces. Like, just because touchscreens work well for some of the latest and the greatest doesn't mean they work well for everything. Like, physical knobs and switches and throttles and steering wheels and the like, just because they're useful for smartphones or even navigating drones and stuff doesn't mean they're great for everything. I'm thinking of the touchscreens on Tesla's honestly just give us back an actual dial or knob for volume control or even adjusting the temperature on the ac right i don't have to look to know that i've done something if i turn a knob tactile feedback is still important in a lot of use cases maybe there are physical tactile things that will never go away because they never should Maybe a vehicle that a human is operating will never lose the physical feedback instruments like a wheel or a throttle because even if they're only mimicking actual mechanical or muscle power control, it still gives a human brain the sense of fine-grained control that maybe is necessary. Heck, when I bought my electric scooter two years ago, I made sure to get one with a physical old-style handlebar brake like you have on a bicycle because I just don't trust the ones that have electronic button-breaking systems. But this also made me think of sci-fi. You know how people laugh at how the original Star Trek series had buttons and switches and stuff, but then by Next Generation and other Star Trek series' Worf and Geordi and all of them were using touchscreens, and so ha ha ha, they got that wrong, because in the 1960s they couldn't imagine such a thing as touchscreens. But what if it turned out they actually got it right in the 60s? What if the operation of a ship starship or otherwise, will always have physical controls, at least if they have humans physically behind those controls. Buttons and switches and an actual helm control that involves tactile motor feedback. Maybe some sort of Minority Report-style abstracted control system is just something that will never make practical sense in that use case. Then again, if the AI stands are right, then we're on the cusp of a reality where humans will never have to control or steer or direct the vehicle themselves ever again, because the AIs will do it. So, either a real-world version of the Millennium Falcon would always have buttons and switches, or else it wouldn't even have a cockpit, because the humans would never be driving the Millennium Falcon, because the computer would always be doing everything. And so just as we imagine cars of the future might not have steering wheels and we'll all just be sitting facing inward or reading books, maybe Han and Luke and Chewie should have just spent their entire time in the back of the Falcon playing Hollow Chess back in the bowels of the ship. So this is totally, totally random, but I need to engage the hive mind for a second. You know those t-shirts, and posters, and whatever, that do nothing but just list name, and name, and name, and name. So like, if it was a friends t-shirt, it would say Ross, and Rachel, and Phoebe, and Chandler, and Monica. You see them everywhere for the last couple years or so, for all sorts of different things. They all kind of use the same font. So can someone explain what the joke is? because it's a weird thing, but I've seen them everywhere for years now and somehow I missed the cultural reference. Where does this real-world meme come from? And again, what is the joke? I assumed it was some sort of riff on, like, you know, law firms and their naming conventions or any sort of partnership company naming conventions like Sterling Cooper, Draper Price or how Kleiner Perkins is in reality. Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. But damned... If Googling around got me nowhere this weekend, do a search for where do those name joke shirts come from and you'll get nowhere. So hive mind, if anyone can explain this meme to me, hit me up on Twitter or the subreddit, like a song that's stuck in your head, but you can't find out who did it because there's no way to hum a tune into a search bar, at least yet. This has been driving me crazy all weekend, so thanks in advance.